Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Daniel. The Old Testament book of Daniel and Daniel chapter number 2. The book of Daniel and chapter number 2. Now, we're beginning our brand new series dealing with the Millennial Kingdom. That inside of the word of God, there are more passages dedicated to the millennial kingdom or the thousand year reign of Christ than any other subject in the Bible except for the tabernacle or temple. And since the Bible has placed a great emphasis on this subject, we need to place the emphasis where God placed the emphasis. Now, what we're going to be doing in the next 40 or so messages is trying to piecemeal bit by bit by bit and trying to build an understanding of our knowledge of this time, which is called the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ. Now, in order for us to get a proper view of prophecy, we have to be able to see how God has ordered and structured prophecy. How does prophecy work? What borders does it have? Now, this is going to be key for our understanding about prophecy, how it fits into God's scope and God's plan. And with this, we find that the book of Daniel is going to be our framework of prophecy. We start in the book of Daniel in chapter number two, the book of Daniel chapter two, and we're going to read this entire chapter, but it's going to be important as we set up this idea of God's framework of prophecy. Daniel chapter two, verse number one. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. But... If you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, ye shall receive gifts from of me, gifts and rewards and great honor. And therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. They answered again and said, let the king tell his servant the dream and we will show you the interpretation of it. And the king answered and said, I know of a certainty that ye would gain the time because ye see the thing is gone from me. But if ye will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. For ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that ye shall show me the interpretation thereof. The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, there is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asketh such things at any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And it is a rare thing that the king requireth it. And there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this cause the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. Then Daniel answered with a counsel and wisdom to Erech, the captain of the king's guard, which had gone forth to slay the wise men of the Babylon. And he answered and said to Erech, the king's captain, why is the decree so hasty from the king? 
Then Eric made known the thing or made the thing known to Daniel. Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time and he would show the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret. And Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changeth the times and the season. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge unto them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with thee. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who hath given me wisdom and might, and hath made known unto me now what we desired of thee, for thou hast now made known unto the kings, unto us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went unto Erech, whom the king had ordered to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and said thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Then Eric brought in the king, or Daniel before the king in haste, and said unto him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Bethshazzar, art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king hath demanded, cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king? But there's a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the vision of thy head upon the bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed that thou shouldest pass hereafter and that he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that thou shall make known the interpretation to the king and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thine heart. Thou, O king, sawest and behold a great image, and this great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The image head was of fine gold, and his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part iron and part clay. Thou sawest tell a stone that was cut without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them in pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the, piece, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain, filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell thee the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beast of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given un into thine hand and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou are the head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and a third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, as iron that breaketh all of these, it shall break in pieces and bruise. 
And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it of the strength of iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with clay. And as the toes of the feet were part iron and part clay, so the kingdom shall partially be strong and partially broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume these kingdoms, and it shall stand for ever. For as much as thou sawest that stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshiped Daniel and commanded that they should offer obulation and sweet odors unto him. And the king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing that thou couldst reveal this secret. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave many great gifts and made him ruler over the province of Babylon and the chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel requested the king and set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. And with this, we are going to see a very powerful thing here dealing with future events. And we're going to title this the future Gentile kingdoms. The future Gentile kingdoms, and maybe as a subtitle, trying to get an understanding, we're going to also speak about this, the framework of prophecy. The future Gentile kingdoms and the framework of prophecy. With the Lord's help, let's go over this and let's talk to him first. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come to you, we're just asking that you would give us wisdom and that you would give us discernment. That just like you were able to give Daniel great wisdom and great discernment, that we could also get this discernment from this passage and see the framework, what you have declared, how it's going to be set up, and that we could start building in our understanding of prophecy based off of this framework that you've given to us. Lord, I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would help make things clear, that you would help us to be understood and understandable. Lord, fill me with your spirit for the purpose that you could glorify your own name through your word. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Inside of the book of Daniel, God has set up what we call the framework of prophecy. If you can imagine that prophecy is like a puzzle, many pieces scattered all over the place. And if you are going to do a puzzle, most normal people, there may be some non-normal people here, but most normal people, you start with the framework. You start with the outside edges. They give you a clear border that you could put together. You could find all those edge pieces. Once you have that framework set up, then you're going to know that every piece of the puzzle that you have left fits inside of that frame. That if you have the framework set up and you have a puzzle piece, you're not going to imagine that it goes somewhere on the outside. By logic, it has to be in the inside of the frame. This is why this is important as we start setting up this series of the millennial kingdom, is that we have to see that God has set up a frame. He has set up the framework of prophecy and everything else according to prophecy, everything else in prophecy, everything else that is revealed has to fit within these borders. Now, unfortunately, what happens, most people who are prophecy preachers ends up not putting this framework here. And without that frame, you could say, well, this belongs here. and This is over here. And you start to put pieces of the puzzle of prophecy in places that they should not go. 
remember that God does everything decently in order. And there are many passages in Daniel that is going to actually set up the framework. In this case that we're covering today, it's going to be mentioned in Daniel chapter number two, where we're going to spend our time. But it is repeated in a different way in Daniel chapter seven, which we're just going to refer to, not go over. Then tonight, we're going to go over another piece of the puzzle, another part of the frame in the book of Daniel. And all of this together is going to set up this framework. This framework is vital. If you do not have this framework, then more than likely your view and your understanding of prophecy is going to be off. Now I'm trying to lay this foundation. This is important. And you may hear me refer to this uh, in the next 40 messages. So many people who do prophecy, they're not bad people, but they're off. And they give people wrong information because they do not set it up in order as the Bible has set it up. So if you are going to have an understanding, this is where we begin. If we're going to see what prophecy is and fill in everything, we start with the outside edges. We start with this framework of prophecy. So if you don't mind, let's kind of dive in here and let's give an understanding. This is going to be speaking about future Gentile kingdoms. Now, when we say about future Gentile kingdoms, it's going to be from the Daniel's perspective. Luckily for us, we have the light of history that we could see some of these things that was spoken in the book of Daniel and then once again repeated in Daniel chapter 7 is now our history. It's our past. There are some things that are still ahead, but this gives us confidence that if we already see some of the things fulfilled, the rest of it is going to be fulfilled just like God said. This is going to be the framework of prophecy. Now also to emphasize this, we see that there's going to be a change of language starting from this point. The Old Testament is written in a language called Hebrew. It was the native language for the Hebrew people. And that is because the Hebrew people are the audience of the Old Testament. However, in the book of Daniel, starting in chapter 2 and verse number 4, and going all the way up to the end of chapter 7, is going to switch languages to a language that the Bible here is going to refer to as Syriac. We also know in history known as Aramaic. Aramaic was the trade language of the world at that time. Aramaic would be the language that would be spoken inside of the court of Nebuchadnezzar. It was the language that everybody around the world would be able to hear and understand of the known world of that area of that time. So we understand that when it was written in Hebrew, most of the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, it is addressed to the audience of the Hebrew people. But now it is being addressed in Aramaic and it's written in Aramaic from chapter 2 verse 4 all the way to the end of chapter 7. It is made so all of the world including the Gentiles could also see and understand this framework. It's another different way of God placing the emphasis of the important of this framework that it's not just for the Hebrew people, but it is for all people to understand what God's plan is and to see the borders of it. And the rest of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, is going to give us the rest of the pieces of the puzzle that fit inside of this framework. With that in mind, let's now dive into this passage. The first thing we want to see is the context. We want to see the context of what is being uh, given here. As we start off, notice with me in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1, and I want you to note the very first word. The very first word is and. This is a conjunction that carries two thoughts together. So what happens in Daniel chapter 1, that we have a man by the name or a young man by the name of Daniel, who in 605 BC was kidnapped from his home in Jerusalem, him and a bunch of other Jewish people, and they were brought into the courts of Babylon. In the courts of Babylon, they were forced to go through the Babylonian educational system and go through their science classes, go through their religion classes with the idea that these were going to be the biggest and the brightest of all of the areas that Babylon controlled. They brought in the smartest people, the most wise students, the most capable students, brought them in to train them how 
to interpret science, how to interpret the signs, how to be able to give counsel according to the knowledge that they had at that time. Daniel and his three friends uh, (laughs) that is recorded in the Bible are going to be a part of this. Now Daniel makes a stand in chapter one where he says, we're not going to eat the king's meat. We're going to follow the Bible and prove it to us. See if we're not better. And what happens is that verse uh, chapter, chapter one and verse 17, as for these four children, Daniel and his three friends, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in verse 20, uh, verse 19. <clears throat> and the king communed with them and Among them was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the astrologers that were in his realm. And then we have the word and. So continuing with this. So Daniel was now graduated from the schools. In Daniel chapter 2, he hasn't established himself. The uh, verse number 20, uh, uh, chapter 1 verse 20 is going to be like an overview of Daniel's career in Babylon. But it now goes back to the beginning. Daniel just graduates their school in Babylon. And now this event happens. This event is going to bring Daniel to the forefront. So let's kind of see what's happening. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to walk through the story and just tell it to you. But Nebuchadnezzar has a dream one night and it's a very real dream. It's a troubling dream. And he could tell that there's something to this dream. That it's not just a passing dream. It's not just because he had too much pepperoni pizza one night. It's not just because the heartburn's acting up. It's not because he watched some scary movie beforehand. That this dream was different. There was a real feel to it. And there was a fear to it. And there was something that he knew was important. And we know that when we wake up, dreams seem to fade. Now, sure, the dream has fed its, uh, faded some. But Nebuchadnezzar had already concluded that his astrologers and witch doctors, in fact, let's see the list of these people in uh, verse number uh, two. Uh, let's get verse one. And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, whereas his spirit was troubled and his sleep broke from him. And the king commanded to call the magicians. So now we start getting all of these lists of people and who was involved. The magician's function was to repel demons and evil spirits by the means of spells. So they use spells to kind of cast away demons, to cast away bad dreams, to cast away all of the the, um, bad things that people may go to. The magician's and the astrologers. The astrologers were prophets who cast horoscopes and studied the stars, then announced the will of heaven and predicted the future. So the magicians are there. The astrologers are there. Uh, Notice it says the sorcerers. The sorcerers were wizards. They were professionals. These, they were professional uh, magic makers. And then the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans as a whole, the Chaldeans as a people come from southern Babylon, which is now Iraq and us. They come from this, but they were so studious and so steeped in the occult that the word Chaldeans at this time came to an understanding of a group of people who relied on the magic and the occult to get things done. So Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And he's already suspected that these guys are not as legitimate as they think they are. So as he brings them in, he stands before them and says, listen, guys, I had a dream. And so they grab their notepads and stuff. It's all right, king, you tell us the dream. Now, at this time, interpreting dreams had become a quote unquote science that they had their little notebooks. They had the little things. So if somebody had a dream, I dreamed I had a unicorn going over a rainbow and it had Skittles all over. They would go and turn their notebook and they could tell people, according to this, this is what it meant that the unicorn represented your mom. And you know, (laughs) they would have all these other things. So they're waiting to get the dream. They're waiting to see everything so they could go to their books. And, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who, by the way, is a brilliant king. He had an understanding. And he says, listen, I'm not going to tell you the dream. 
but, 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 but we, we need the dream so we could tell you what it means. No, 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 no. If you are truly legitimate and you could truly have these secret powers and have access to the unknown spiritual world, you tell me the dream and the interpretation. You need to show that you, you're not just t- telling me what I want to hear. If you are truly real, if you truly have these powers, tell me what I dream too. And they all looked at each other and said, well, wait, King, we can't do that. There's no one who could do that. Now Nebuchadnezzar is saying, listen here, if you don't, if you don't, verse five, and the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, this thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made a dunghill. Basically, if you don't tell me the dream, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to get rid of your family and I'm going to make your houses the junk pile. Now the uh, astrologers, the magicians, the sorcerers, the wizards, the professional occultists are all going, uh-oh, we're in trouble. So they began to negotiate. Listen, listen, just tell us a little bit. Give us something. Come on. There's no one who could do this. We're willing to help you. We're here to be your servant, but you got to give us something. Nebuchadnezzar is now drawing a line in the sand. Absolutely not. Either you are legit or you're not. You tell me the dream and to prove that you told me the interpretation is to tell me the dream. Give me both of them. Now, well, they start looking and shrugging and said, listen, that's beyond our scope. Only a God can do that. And gods don't walk in flesh. We don't have power to this. And so they stall a little bit more. They start to say, well, let's just wait. Notice if you don't mind in... um, um, Oh, where'd my thing go? Cool. Uh, Let's just read verse number eight. And the king answered and said, I know of certainty that ye would gain the time. That's what I was looking for. When they say they gain the time, what the people are doing is they're hoping for a luckier day. Meaning that because they're all superstitious, they're astrologers or whatnot, they're like, wait, 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 wait. Give us a little bit of time. We're going to wait for a day where the stars are all aligned. And when the stars are all aligned, we'll be able to get the secret power. And we could go ahead with this luckier day. We'll be able to tell you the thing. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no, no, no. I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to stall. Tell me now or die. Not like being called on the spot. Not like being called out uh, to see if you're legitimate or not. And now when they're all like, blah, 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 uh, 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 and they're stuttering, Nebuchadnezzar says, all right, I'm killing you all. You're all useless. You're not who you say you are. You're not as smart as you think you are. You all claim to have this power and don't have it. You're all dead. Sign warrant. Hey, come here. Sign a death warrant. Anybody who's part of their crew, they're all dying. Kill everybody. Well, so much for that lucky day. They're very an unlucky day. This is not a good day for those professional occultists. Well, the news finally gets to Daniel. Now, Daniel at this time has just freshly graduated from their college. He hasn't had time or hasn't gotten the opportunity to establish himself. So he doesn't stand before the king. But because he is associated with these people, because he went through their school, that's about the only association he has, they're going to kill him and his three Hebrew friends as well. So Daniel hasn't stood before the king But now they're killing all the wise men for being frauds. They're coming to him. Now, an interesting thing is that Daniel does not panic. He does not get frenzied. He doesn't get upset. He doesn't lose his cool. He doesn't lose his testimony. Notice as now they come to Daniel in verse number 13. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. Verse number 14. And Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom. You see here that Daniel's not speaking hastily. He's not getting in a rush. He's taking his time and answering his, using his words wisely. Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Eric. Eric is the captain of the king's guard whose job is to kill all the wise men of Babylon. Basically, he's the executioner. So nothing like waking up one morning not knowing what's going on. Executioner here. (laughs) What's going on? I'm here to kill everybody. Good luck. 
well, wait a second. Well, can you explain what's going on? And Eric gives him the reply. Notice in verse 15. And he, Daniel, answered and said to Eric, the king's captain, why the decree so hasty from the king? Then Eric made the thing known to Daniel. Basically, he just recapped everything that just happened. Verse 16, then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time and that he would show the king the interpretation. So Daniel says, listen, tell the king that I got this. I will find the dream and get the interpretation of it. Just give me just a little bit. Go tell him that this will be done. So they do. Verse six, uh, 17, then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Sometimes people will use their Hebrew name or their, their Babylonian names, which is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But here the Bible is using their Hebrew name. This is what's given to them and their names are honoring to the Lord. He gathers his friends and they get together and they pray. Notice with me in verse 18, that they would desire mercies of God. That word mercies is a very important word. This is in, when you see the mercies in plural, carries the idea of mercies of mercies. I need the multitude of mercies. I don't just need mercy. I need a multitude of mercies right now because I need to find an impossible task. But I'm so thankful that our God knows everything. Notice, if you don't mind, in verse 18, that they would desire the mercies of God of heaven. Now, notice we now have a name of God. The names of God are always significant. As you follow through the names of God through the Bible, now we come to the God of heaven. Whenever it's referred to the God of heaven, it is usually in a time where you're dealing with Gentile kingdoms. Now, as the Hebrew people are now transported and kidnapped and brought all throughout the Babylonian empire... They're now in an empire that has multitudes of God, gods, little g-gods. Babylon had tons of gods. And so if you said, yeah, I talked to my God today, the next question would be, which God? So when it's referring to the God of heaven, it is referring to the God who made everything. The God who's above all the other little g-gods. The God who's more important, more powerful. And the God that is real. That's the God I'm speaking to. The real God. The God who is over everything. That God is the one I'm speaking to. The God of heaven. Concerning this secret, and Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. Then was the secret revealed into Daniel in a night vision. It didn't say a dream. It carries the idea that as Daniel's praying and talking with God, that God gives him the answer in the middle of his prayer as they're praying and seeking after God's face. Praise the Lord. Then Daniel immediately blessed the God of heaven, begins to pray, and then he goes into Nebuchadnezzar. Let's tell you, Nebuchadnezzar, what's going on, which now brings us to the dream. All right, this is the main event. So all of that was context bringing us to this. So Daniel comes in and he tells uh, Nebuchadnezzar that my God's got this. He's very clear saying, I don't have any powers. I don't claim to have powers. I don't have anything. It's all God. I don't know any secrets. God does. And God said, this is what's going to happen. And he says, God gave you this dream, Nebuchadnezzar, because you're the most important person in the world right now. God's giving you this dream because he wants all the world to understand God's plan. So in the dream, and let's kind of look at the chart. This will help us out. The handout that I gave everyone. If you notice in the chart, I have it divided up into two sections. On the left-hand side, you have Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which we're now covering in Daniel chapter 2. Later on, Daniel is going to have a vision in Daniel chapter 7 that is going to back up and reinforce this dream and the interpretation. So what's going to happen is that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in this dream, it is a huge statue that is towering over the, uh, the plain. In this statue, it has a head of gold. Then it has a breast and arms of silver. Then this statue will have a belly and thighs of brass. Then it's going to have legs and feet of iron and then the feet and the toes are going to be a mixture of iron and clay. So you can imagine this monstrosity of a, of a statue here, a head of gold, arms and chest of silver, thighs and legs of brass, 
legs of iron and the feet and the toes are mixed with iron and clay. Now, just looking at this, you can notice a couple things just observing the materials. What happens is it goes from most precious to less precious. Gold is the most precious metal, followed by silver, and then brass, and then down to iron, and then down to clay. We could see that what is happening is that the preciousness is going to go down. What this is going to do is going to be a reflection of the kingdoms. So as Daniel begins to talk, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, thou art the head of gold. You are the head of this kingdom. Now what we're going to see is that each of the Gentile kingdoms that follow after him are going to become less precious and less centralized, less valuable as it's going to spread from one person to multiple people. In Nebuchadnezzar's day, as Nebuchadnezzar is ruling Babylon, and that's the head of gold, is Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's the head. Nebuchadnezzar ruled as an absolute ruler. What does that mean? That he did whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. He could point to someone and say, you go to jail, and they go to jail. No trial, no lawyers, they went to jail. And then as they're going to jail, Nebuchadnezzar could say, listen, never mind. Why don't you come back? You could go back and have a new job. I'll promote you. And there would be no paperwork. There'd be no uh, lawyers. There'd be no inquiry. Okay, fine, that's done. And then as the guy's taking his post, Nebuchadnezzar said, never mind. I hate the way that you brush your teeth today. Kill him. There was no checks and balances. There was nothing. He could change his mind on a whim. And what he said was law. He was acting as an absolute ruler. Whatever he said went. Nebuchadnezzar was this head of gold. What happens is that after Nebuchadnezzar dies, his son Evil Merodach rules. After that, his son Nabonius rules. And then Babylon is destroyed. It is conquered by the next empire, which is going to be the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire is going to have its chest and arms of silver. That's this empire. Now, Nebuchadnezzar acted as an absolute ruler. Whatever he said went. But the Babylonian Empire was conquered. Nebuchadnezzar, when he was ruling, people worshipped as a god. People very much saw him as a god. When the Persians take over, they don't have as much absolute power as Nebuchadnezzar did. They had lots of power, but they had a rule set called the Law of the Medes and Persians. This law was there because they saw their Persian kings and emperors as gods. And they ruled that a god cannot make a mistake. So if a god says something and gives a decree, it can never be rescinded because a god cannot make a mistake. He can't, you can't rescind a law because I'd be saying, oops, I made a mistake. So they had the laws of the Medes and Persians. They had plenty of power and the emperor was considered a god and worshipped and treated as a god, but he did not have as much power as Nebuchadnezzar did because they had a rule set they had to obey. In fact, you'll see that at the end of Daniel when the Persians are ruling, uh, dealing with the lion's den, Daniel and the lion's den. You'll see that in the book of Ezra. You'll see that in the book of Nehemiah. And you'll definitely see it in the book of Esther. This law set that they're protected, the law of the Medes and the Persians. Well, after the Persians, they are defeated by a man by the name of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great in about 330s BC took over the known world and now the headquarters is now brought to Europe because Alexander the Great was from Greece. And as Alexander the Great came and he conquered everything, this is going to be represented by the belly and the thighs of brass. Now Alexander was sort of considered godlike. He thought he was the son of Zeus. So that's pretty much a god complex. However, he did not have absolute power. The Greeks at this time had already experimented a little bit with democracy. They had a several rules of government, but they had a lot of different things that would switch over. 
And so they did not believe that one person should have the absolute power. Someone would rule as a king, but there was a little bit of checks and balances. People were not afraid to say, hey, king, do you really think this is the wisest action? There could be some people who could counter and stand before the king. So it was not as powerful as a kingdom, but it did sweep across from Europe all the way down to India and spread and took that whole area. After that, the Greek empire was supplanted by the Roman empire. The Roman empire has always been represented by iron because they were known by their iron swords that they went and conquered the world and they conquered the known world. Now the center of civilization is definitely held within Europe as now all of the world stage is now brought to a European thing. And they bring with it, they take the Greek thought and they make it theirs and they spread it all throughout Europe and they rule for a while. Now, one thing that we've mentioned is that each one of these kingdoms were conquered. Babylon was conquered by Persia. Persia was conquered by the Greeks. The Greeks were conquered by the Romans. But the one thing about the Roman Empire is that it was never conquered. It collapsed within itself approximately about 500 A.D. The Roman Empire collapsed, but the Roman thought still remained. Whenever we go to school and you study history, you usually study Western civilization. Western civilization is, comes from Roman thought. That you look at the pillars, like it going to a, a, a White House or to Congress or to even Madison, you'll see those pillars. That comes from Roman thought. Our idea of laws and government comes from Roman rule. Even the idea of democracy comes from the Greeks, which the Romans took, and we brought that into our idea. The way that the Romans and Greeks thought, we think that way. We think differently than those in the Western part of the world. We think differently than Chinese people or differently than Japanese people. It's because we come from a different culture. The Roman culture and the Roman Empire was never conquered. It collapsed within itself. Now, we see this within the idea of the iron mixed with the clay. Those don't mix well together, but they're mixed together. They're all divided. They're not together well. And what we're living in right now is a Roman-derived government, meaning that the United States, we have our thought, our language, our culture from Rome. And England, they have their Roman thought, mind, culture, and language from Rome. You go to Spain, they have the mind, culture, all throughout Europe. It comes from this Western civilization, which comes from Rome. Rome was never conquered. It just collapsed within itself, but the thought and the culture still remains. That's where we're at today. All we were talking about now is now our history. It was in Daniel's future. Now we come to our modern parts, which we're now looking to our future. In our future, we're going to have in our Roman-derived governments an antichrist that will come. The book of Daniel chapter 7 speaks about this more in detail. But what's going to happen at the end of the antichrist reign is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to be this rock that comes and destroys all of the Gentile kingdoms. Then we saw in this uh, image here that this rock now becomes a huge mountain and no one's ever going to conquer this mountain. No one's going to conquer this government and it's going to rule forever to the end of time until God restarts time and puts eternity future for a thousand years. Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign. No one's going to conquer him. It's never going to be defeated. It's never going to collapse. It's going to last forever. This is going to be the border of the framework of prophecy. This is part of that framework that God's setting up that he gave back and said, I want all the world to know what's going to happen. And by the way, we have the light of history. Babylon was conquered by Persia. Persia was conquered by Greece. Greece was conquered by Rome and Rome collapsed within itself. Just like God said it would happen. Again, Daniel chapter 7 gives more details. I'll have this chart for you. You can look at it for yourself and study it. But we're just setting up the framework of prophecy that God says that his kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ is going to come at the end and destroy and defeat all Gentile kingdoms and none of them will stand against him. Now, with that being said, turn back to me to Daniel chapter number two 
as Daniel now tells the dream and gives the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar, let's see the response. So we saw the context. We saw the dream. Now let's look at the response. So Nebuchadnezzar is not a guy to be trifled with, as you already saw, that he was going to kill all the wise men, all the scientists, all the occult leaders, all the professional people. He was just going to wipe them out just because they couldn't tell him what the dream was. So let's see what Nebuchadnezzar's response when someone finally tells him the dream. Notice with me verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and worshiped Daniel. Let's pause. We know that Daniel is probably very uncomfortable here because he's already said it's not me. He's already gave credit to God. But Nebuchadnezzar is recognizing that this answer came from God. And it's one of the few times that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the world, humbles himself and says, you know what? There's someone better than me. And it's not Daniel. It's Daniel's God. Notice verse 46. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell down on his face and worshiped Daniel and commanded that they should offer ovulation and sweet odors to him. Daniel's like, no, it's not me. It's not me. It's not me. But how do you tell the most powerful guy who kills people on a whim? uh, uh, Please don't. (laughs) I mean, especially when he's really happy, you don't want to make him unhappy right now. Verse 47, and the king answered to Daniel and said, of a truth, it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings. This is big stuff coming from Nebuchadnezzar who very much considered himself to be the king of everybody. For him to say, listen, there's a God that's more powerful than all my gods. And there is a God who is my boss, who is more powerful than me, who knows more than me. I'm acknowledging there's someone bigger than me out there. This is a big deal. You know, one thing about our God is that he knows everything. Our God is real. And we need to keep our God as a big God. Sometimes we come to a problem and we don't have all the answers, but we look at this problem and it looks so big. Do you know that problem is really small if you look at God? We need to look past the circumstances and see the God of the circumstances and see that there's a God that's bigger than anything that we can face, that is bigger than any problem that we have to endure. Our God is big. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth, it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords and a revealer of secrets, seeing that thou couldst reveal this secret." Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the province of Babylon and the chief governors and over all the wise men of Babylon. Now remember, we saw the the overview in chapter one where it says Daniel's going to be put in charge. How did Daniel get put in charge? Chapter two. And now he's in charge and Nebuchadnezzar says, this guy, I want him in charge because this guy knows how to get a hold of his God. I want this information. So Nebuchadnezzar is now put in a place of influence throughout the kingdom. Verse number 49. Then Daniel requested to the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three Hebrew friends, over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Daniel said, hey, if you want to find three people that are like-minded like me, Here's three guys I could recommend. Nebuchadnezzar says, put them in charge too. That's great. We need more people like this. What we're seeing is that we have a God who knows everything. Our God, as we look at all of this, is in control of all of history. Do you know where God's at right now? He's sitting on his throne. God is not pacing. He's not wringing his hands saying, oh no, this is just, I can't believe they elected those people. I, I don't, how are they doing this? He's not rubbing his head and saying, oh man, what am I going to do now? God is sitting on the throne. There's nothing that is not out of his control. We may feel like everything's out of control in our life, but God has everything in control. God is a God who knows all of history. He sees all of time at once. It is nothing for him. The question for us is, can you trust this God? Can you look at him and say, I trust him? Can you look at him and say, as long as God is sitting on the throne, I don't have to panic. My God's in charge. We see that in Daniel. Can you imagine someone knocking on your door and saying, listen, king ordered everyone to kill. 
would you might have a little bit of panic? If they said they were coming to kill you, would you might have your heart skip a beat a little bit? May you kind of start searching? Daniel was able to handle that calmly with counsel and wisdom because he trusted God. My God's bigger than Nebuchadnezzar. My God's bigger than this bill. My God's bigger than this health problem. My God's bigger than this disobedient family member. My God is big. How big is your God? Sometimes we just need to go back and say, Lord, I trust you. When you find yourself in the place of panicking, when you find yourself in the place where you just start getting anxious and careful, go back to your God and acknowledge how big of a God he is. He's a God who is holy, holy, holy. He is a God who is so great how great thou art. He is a God so big that we could stand on that foundation and be nailed down and know that he is in charge. How big is your God? What do you do with this? Maybe some of you have some health scare. Maybe some of you have some financial issue. Someone may have some family problem that looks so big and so impossible. May I encourage you to go up to God and deliver that issue to his feet and say, God, you're big enough to handle this problem, this person, this situation. God, I trust you. I don't know what to do in this situation. I don't know how to handle it, but I can trust you to do your work. Imagine what a burden would be lifted if you went to the cross of Calvary and said, God, I'm trusting you with this. I'm trusting you with this burden. I'm trusting you with this issue. You are big enough to handle it. So the question is for you, dear friend, How big is your God? Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you could give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.